verses 5 through 9. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Let's pray. God, make us receptive to your word. Let us hear it. And by your spirit be transformed, God, to walk from here and act accordingly to what your word has to say as kingdom citizens. Be with us now. We love you and praise you. Amen. So just a little background on uh, Myra and I. So Myra and I, um, our involvement in missions um, has been mainly focused on the Sochala people of Ecuador. So if you don't know anything about the Sochala, you can definitely go Google them and find out about them. But they're a people group in Ecuador that live in the jungles. Um, they have their own villages in uh, different areas across Ecuador. And so we spent time there. Um, we, lived, we went there for a couple weeks, and then we lived there for a month with them uh, as I taught the Bible to the believers there in, uh, in Ecuador. And what you'll learn about Sochala people is that they're very distinct. They have their own kind of uh, set of things. So... You'll see them, they, they paint their heads red uh, with a berry, and they wear multicolored skirts, and they speak their own language called Safaki, um, and it, basically it's just a completely different way of life. And so when I walk up in there, you can, as you know, I don't look like a Sachala. Uh, one, I, I mean, I'm white, and, so, and they're not. Two, I'm tall, most of these men are very short. Three, I have a beard. Men there don't grow beards, I don't know why. And, and four, they wear a shirt. I mean, I wear a shirt. They don't wear shirts. So, yeah, I definitely wear a shirt for them. So, but they don't wear shirts. Um, the men don't. And so, uh, they, you know, that's their way of life. So they're very distinct from me. So when I walk into their village, they know, man, this guy's not from here. He's not from around here, you know, that kind of thing. And so they understand that I am from the United States. They know that for a fact. And so... I think about it, what if for, you know, one time when I go back, and I go into the, you know, their village, and they start treating me and looking at me as though I'm a Sochala. You know, they put the, the skirt on me, and, and they paint my head red, and they start speaking to me in Sophaki, acting like that I am a Sochala. They think that I'm a Sochala. They don't see any distinctiveness in me. It's actually kind of a dangerous thing if you begin to think about that, when they don't see anything distinct about you. They think that, hey, he should be accustomed to our way of life, and I'm not. That's exactly what the Sermon on the Mount is getting to, is a distinctiveness. There's a warning in the Beatitudes that, look, it's dangerous to look like the world. It's dangerous not to look like kingdom citizens. It's eternally dangerous. And so what Jesus is doing here, he's saying, look, you are a people of a different kingdom. You are not from here. As Mr. Al read, we are citizens of another country, of another world, and it's not this one. So you must live like you're of another world. You must live like you are kingdom citizens of God's kingdom, not of this world. So that's what Christ is getting at here, is that these are the characteristics that describe, that characterize kingdom citizens that live in Christ's kingdom. So this this really begins to do some introspection for us. Is that do, Are we distinct? 
do we live differently because we are part of Christ's kingdom? And that's, that's the thesis of this sermon. You can write this down on your outline is this. The character of Christ's disciples validates the truthfulness of the gospel message and advances the kingdom of Christ in this world. That's what the Beatitudes are. That this is what makes us distinct. This is what makes us look different from the world. And it's exactly what the law does for Israel. The law was given by God to Israel so that it would be, one, a wisdom for them, but two, distinguish them from the pagan nations around them. Distinguish them from the Canaanites. That's what the law did for them. And so Christ comes on the scene, and as Nick told us last week, he comes on the scene as a new Moses who gives a new law. He's actually a new and a better Moses because he gives us a law that is written on our heart. So as Christ's disciples, we have a new heart and a new spirit, and we can actually obey this law. That's what Christ is coming to do. And so, our obedience to these things, it distinguishes us from this kingdom, this world. But before we kind of jump into each particular beatitude, I want to, I want to give some kind of overarching truths about what the beatitudes are and are not. I, I'm, I'm going to fly by these, so I'm throwing these at you real quick. So, what the beatitudes are, they're an identification, not a stipulation. They're not stipulations. The Beatitudes are not stipulations for kingdom entrance, but identification of kingdom citizenship. They show that you are a citizen of the kingdom. They don't make you one. They identify you as a kingdom citizen. They don't make you one. Just as Jesus said in John 13, 35, he said, By this they will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The characteristic of love for one another identifies them as being Christ's disciples. That's what the Beatitudes are. It's about being kingdom citizens. The next one is this, is that the Beatitudes are characteristics. They're not isolated incidences. They're patterns of life. They're a lifestyle. So if you walk out of here and you say, man, this week I'm just going to try and show one act of mercy. I'm just going to try and do one, one good thing this week, be meek one time this week. You've missed the point of the Sermon on the Mount. Christ didn't come to make better people. He came to make a new people. He came to make a new people for himself that would reflect his glory. These are characteristics. These aren't isolated. The next thing is this. These are spirit-produced, not humanly manufactured. Genuine fruit is not manufactured by just our, our trying to conjure up fruit. It's a divine work in us because we have God's spirit. A friend, a friend Eric Reed said it like this. He said, Fruit apart from the root, which is the gospel, is like trying to staple real fruit on a tree. It will inevitably rot. This is not meant to try and conjure up, but this is inherently within us. As a kingdom citizen, we have the Spirit of God within us. So these naturally come from us. And we want to cultivate these in our lives. That's what a kingdom citizen does. The last thing is this. These are countercultural not the social norm. And we're going to hit that point a lot during, during our time today. Is that these look crazy to the world around us. These beatitudes, being meek and merciful, pursuing righteousness, they look crazy to the world. It's not even on their radar. They don't even have a lens for this. So we will look crazy to the world. We will look abnormal. And that's because we're not citizens of this world. 
or of a different kingdom. So now let's, let's kind of go look and hit on just a couple of different things, go through each of the Beatitudes. Your second point on your outline, this is the first Beatitude, verse 5. Christ's disciples are characterized by their submission and trust in God's sovereignty. He says, blessed are the meek. What does it mean by meek? You know, we, we, we use that word for people, you know, we said, man, they just have such a meek spirit about them. They are so meek. Man, what does that mean when you call somebody meek? Does that mean they have like a, a really gentle demeanor? Are they like really quiet voice? That's what a meek person is. They talk really quietly. Oh, they're so meek. They wouldn't hurt a fly. They're so meek. Well, that's not really the understanding that Jesus has of calling people meek. In order to understand meek, we have to have an eye in the Old Testament. So he's drawing from the book of Psalms, which if anybody knows about the book of Psalms, it's these people right here, right? We know about the book of Psalms. He's quoting from Psalms 3711. It says this, But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. So Jesus is drawing from Psalm 37. But what is a meek person? What is this meek person in Psalm 37? Well, the entirety of the psalm speaks about a person who is being pursued by his foes, his enemies. They're looking to take his life from them. And what, what is this meek person described as? He's described as this. He's one who trusts in the Lord. He delights in the Lord. He commits his ways to the Lord. He waits patiently for the Lord. He refrains from anger and retaliation. And the law of God is on his heart. Rather than pursuing his own course of action against his enemies, he trusts in God. And he obeys his commands, despite whatever is happening around him. He trusts that God will bring good out of the situation. That he will work in that. And not only that, that despite the situation, despite the pressure that's coming from his enemies, he still obeys his commands. That's what a meek person is. Jesus is saying the people who are of God, of Christ's kingdom, they trust in God despite what's going on. And they continue to obey his commands. So obedience for Christ's disciples is not an optional trait. Obedience is not optional. You know, uh, typically, uh, you know, as us, when pressure comes, you know, we begin to think, oh, man, we can kind of cut the corners on this one, right? We can kind of, you know, relax and be laxed on this. Look, ladies, I, I know the struggle. You're going through the, uh, the supermarket, going through Walmart, and you know you got a dinner party tonight, and you're saying, I could make something from scratch, or there's a packet right here I could just grab, and then I could call it scratch. You know you know what I'm talking about, but look, I ain't got no problem with packets. Y'all, y'all just hear me on that. But you know, you know, kind of fudge on that and say, oh man, I can cut the corners, you know, make the packet, call it scratch. We get that. We understand those pressures. And what Jesus is saying here is that despite the pressures, I'm not talking about baking for dinner parties, but despite the pressures of life, whatever situations and circumstances are going on, he's saying, God's people, true kingdom citizens, trust God no matter what. We trust God no matter what. And obedience for us is not an option. We still continue to obey what God has said. No matter what, no matter the pressure, no matter the circumstances. That's what Christ's citizens, Christ's disciples live like. And that is so countercultural to, to us. That is not what the world says. What the world says is this, man, you better be worried. 
you better be anxious. You better be nervous. That's what the world says. The world says, I'm going to need to take this in my own hands and get this done. I'm going to need to do this. That's what the world says. And so, but that is the opposite of being meek. The opposite of meek or meekness is pride. Peter says that in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 7. He, he takes two thoughts together. He says, humble yourselves at the beginning of 5. And then into 7, he says, cast all your anxieties on the Lord, for he cares for you. Now, why does he talk about humility and then not worrying? Well, you know why? Because worrying is pride. It says, I need to do this. I don't need to trust anyone but myself. It begin to think that, hey, finite men can get things done that an infinite God cannot do. That's what worry says. So that's countercultural. Being a meek person, trusting in God and His sovereignty and submitting to His will and commands is not even on our culture's radar. It says, hey, take the bull by the horns and you get it done. So Christ's people are described as people who are meek, who trust God in His sovereignty and submit to His commands. The next one is this, number three on your outline. Christ's disciples are characterized by their pursuit of personal righteousness. He says they hunger and they thirst for righteousness. What a beautiful and poetic way. I mean, why does He use hunger and thirst? I mean, it's pretty relatable for us, right? We've all experienced those hunger pains and those thirst pains. Almost overbearing. And we even heard those stories about people driven to the point of despair. They're so hungry and they're so thirsty that they'll, they'll eat things out of the garbage. Or they'll drink contaminated water just to satisfy those longings. That's what Christ is pulling from. He's saying, look, those same longings, those same pains is what Christ's disciples have. They have a longing to be righteous, to live righteously in this world. That's what Christ's disciples are characterized as. They want to live righteous. And this is not, this is not a, what we call an imputed righteousness, what Christ gives us to be positionally right before God. We're talking about character here. Living godly, living righteously in this world. And this is kind of twofold, this righteousness. Not only are we to pursue a personal righteousness, but we're to promote righteousness in this world. We're to be a people who live righteously, and also we want righteous things done here in this world. We want judges to make right decisions. We want the government and politicians to act righteously in all their affairs. We don't want criminals off the hook. We don't want the innocent oppressed. We want righteousness here. And so Christ's disciples are characterized by, by two kinds of righteousness. One, we pursue our own personal righteousness. And what does that look like? What does pursuing personal righteousness look like? It looks like this, is that you consider in all your affairs what God has deemed as right and good. That's, what you, that's how you pursue personal righteousness, is that when you come to a decision, you come to a, a point in life where you say, well, I've got to make a decision, you begin considering, you look through this lens, what is right in God's eyes? What does God care about? What does God want? 
you don't take the world's view of what's good and right, but you're saying, what, what, is God's, what has God said? What does he say? That's what pursuing personal righteousness is. What is the righteous way to live? And promoting righteousness in the world, we, we want righteousness here. And so we, we're active in social justice. We want righteousness here. So Christ's disciples, we're characterized by people who long for personal righteousness and promote righteousness in this world. And the promise is this, that we will be satisfied. And what that looks like is in the future, there's coming a day when Christ will return and his disciples will make, be made completely righteous. We won't have, have any other problems with sin and evil. There will be no more struggle for us. It will be over. And not only that, we'll live in a land live in a land that is perfectly righteous. There won't be any other, any other problems with evil or wrongdoing because God will be there and will reign among His people. That is the promise we have. So when people characterize you as this, as a person who, like, who really wants to be like Christ in all your affairs, when people look at you and say, man, they really want to be like Jesus Christ and they really want to promote righteousness here on this earth. They really want things done correctly and right. Would people characterize you like that? Next point is this. Christ's disciples are characterized by their compassion. That we are a people who are characterized by mercy and forgiveness and grace despite what a person has done to us. That we show them these things. And the Bible gives us many examples of what mercy looks like and then what mercy doesn't look like. And you think back to Exodus chapter 34. On the heels of Israel sinning against God by worshiping the golden calves, God says to Moses, he says this in 34.6, that I'm a gracious God, merciful, forgiving. God could have easily wiped away the Israelites because of their sin. He could have easily smited them. Yet he shows them mercy and grace. And another example, this is actually a bad example of mercy. Jonah, we don't ever think about Jonah. Oh, Jonah got swallowed by a well, yeah. Jonah's actually a poor example of mercy. So Jonah is called by God to go preach repentance to the Ninevites. Yet he does what? He runs away. And you think, oh man, he must have been scared. He was scared of the Ninevites. They were big and bad. Actually, that's not what Jonah says. At the end of Jonah, Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, he says, you know why I didn't do it, God? Because I knew you would forgive them. I knew you would show them mercy. I knew you wouldn't destroy them. Wow, from a prophet. Isn't that crazy? The person who you would think would understand God's mercy, yet he doesn't want mercy for the Ninevites. What a bad example. And then you get the unforgiving servant, a, a popular story in Matthew chapter 18. You get the, this guy, this servant, who was called by the king because he had a large debt and he goes before the king, and the king wipes it away. He says, you're forgiven of your debt. Well, that servant goes home, and he starts doing his math, looking at all his servants, and he finds one that, hey, look, this guy didn't pay me. He's got a debt. And he goes to him, and it was a small debt. He throws him in prison. At the end of the story, that guy gets th thrown in prison, actually. And the story ends like this. You were shown great mercy, yet you didn't show any mercy to your servant. That is not how we can be people. God has made us a people who are to be merciful and to reflect God's character 
to the people around us. So being merciful, compassionate. We want to show mercy and compassion to others, even though they may not deserve it. And again, this is, this is countercultural to the world's message. The corporate ladder says, it doesn't matter who you have to step on. It doesn't matter who you have to thrash, who you have to yell at, who you have to scream at, who you have to belittle. It doesn't matter. Mercy is weakness in the world's eyes. But in God's economy, mercy is a beautiful thing because it is a reflection of His character. In God's economy, those who withhold mercy do not receive mercy. And that's, that's the promise, is that those who are merciful, they shall receive mercy. It's the promise for us, is that we're merciful in all of our affairs and the people we deal with because we have received mercy and we will one day receive mercy again in the final judgment. So ask yourself this, is, I mean, do you handle your coworkers and maybe even your children with mercy? Or are you quick to, to scold, scold them and be harsh just at the first hint of error? We want people to say about the kingdom citizens, man, I really deserve to be yelled at right then. They could have screamed at me and scolded me because I really messed up. But for some reason, they showed me mercy. They forgave me. That's Christ's disciples. It's what it looks like to be a disciple of Christ. And because we've received great mercy, that's what Paul says in Ephesians 4. He says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. We show mercy and we forgive because we've been forgiven much. Next point is this. Christ's disciples are characterized by their moral purity. Verse 5a. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What does it mean to be pure in heart? You know, we say about that man, they have such a pure heart. They're so pure hearted. Again, we have to have an eye to the Old Testament. Psalm 24.4 says this. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. So the psalmist is connecting. Hey, look, somebody who has a pure heart, they don't, they don't want to be around what is false. They don't want to speak deceitfully. So what are we to be? The pure in heart means we're to be a people of truth who care about integrity and truth-telling. We want to tell the truth in all of our dealings. Again, not countercultural. Hey, it doesn't matter what you have to say to make the sale as long as you make the sale, right? It doesn't matter if you make your competition look bad or maybe you boost your numbers. It doesn't matter what you have to say as long as you get the sale and you succeed. We're not to be a people of deceit and speaking falsely, but a people of the truth. And why? It's because we have the truth. We are a people of truth because we have the truth. We speak truth. Because in the world's eye, you know what determines whether we speak truth or not? The almighty dollar. That's what says, hey, you know what? Depends on the dollar amount whether we speak the truth or not. For us, it is not the dollar amount that determines whether we speak truth. It's the almighty God. He determines that. 
So we are to be a people of truth, of speaking the truth, even if it makes us look bad. And that's the tough part. Sometimes we have to come back and say, man, I was wrong. I messed up. Speaking the truth may even make us look bad, but we're to be pure in heart. People who tell the truth, who are truth-telling, because we have the truth. And lastly, this. Christ's disciples are characterized by their desire for reconciliation. It says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We are known as a people who are peaceful, and we promote peace. We want estranged relationships and alienated relationships brought back together, reconciled. We want families and genders and nations and races reconciled. We want that. We don't want to see division. We don't want to see factions. We don't want to see violence and hostility. But we want to be a people of peace and who promote peace. That's what we want. But the culture does not say that either. They say, no, be violent, be hostile. If somebody doesn't think the way you do, they are inferior to you. If they don't look the way you do, they are inferior to you. They promote division, this world. Christ's disciples, because we're of another kingdom, we're of another world, we promote peace. We want unity. And even amongst the body, as you can believe, there's even factions even in the body of Christ. And our, our calling, what God has made us, is to be a people who promote peace even in the body of Christ. And as, John, as Jesus prayed in John 17, I pray for my people to be one as we are one. So we are a reflection of the unity of the Godhead, the Trinity. So we are promoting peace. We want relationships to be reconciled. We want reconciliation. So would people characterize you like this? A person of peace, of promoting peace? Or would they, would they say, no, they're a gossip and they're a backbiter and they slander people behind their backs. They want division. They enjoy it. They want people to be estranged and alienated. Or would they say, no, they want people to be brought back together. They want reconciliation. But why is that important? Why is peace important? Why is reconciliation important? Peace and reconciliation are important because of this. It's in the gospel. Is that we, who were enemies of God, rebels, have been made children of God through Christ Jesus. And that if you sit in here and you have not repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ, you sit here as an enemy and a rebel of God. That's tough language, but that's the Bible's language. You sit here as an enemy and a rebel of God. But the good news of the gospel is this, you can be made a child of God. That by putting your faith in Jesus Christ, putting of your sins, you can be reconciled to God through Christ, made a child. That is why we promote peace, is because we are people who have experienced great peace with God through Christ Jesus. That's why we promote it. And so let's just look at a couple of applications from this. Think through, what, what does this mean? What does it mean to be a king, kingdom citizen? Why is it important? First thing that you can write down in, under applications is, we are image bearers. We are image bearers. 
The Beatitudes are reminders for kingdom citizens to reflect their king's character to the world through their own character. We reflect the character of our God to those around us. That's what Matthew 5.16 says, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We are image bearers. We reflect the character and the nature of God. So when we are meek, we communicate that our God is trustworthy in the midst of every trial. When we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we communicate that we serve a God who is perfectly righteous and good. When we are merciful, we communicate that we serve a God who is not brash or irrationally harsh with people, but He is a merciful, forgiving, and loving God. When we are morally pure, we communicate that we serve a God who is also pure and knows no evil and does not speak deceit. When we are peacemakers, we communicate that we serve a God who is peaceful and desires peace rather than conflict, who desires to make enemies sons. So what are you communicating to the world outside of Crosspoint, in your workplaces, in your families? What are you communicating? Because that's what we do. When we live as kingdom citizens, we are communicating that this is the character and nature of our God. This is who our God is. And that's what, that's what the opposite, that's what sin does. Sin is, one facet of that is, you're not communicating rightly about who God is. When you worry and are anxious, people, people get this, they say, well, I guess he serves a God that can't really be trusted if he has to worry and be anxious about something. I guess I shouldn't trust their God either. So we are image bearers. How we act is we communicate who God is and His character and His nature. Next thing is this. Is that we have to continually, day by day, put Christ as our example before us. Is that when we wake up each morning, we're saying, Christ is is put up here. He's our example. He's who we look to. He's perfectly meek and merciful and righteous and pure. He's a prince of peace. He is our example. So are we looking to Christ each day when we wake up for help in living as kingdom citizens? Let's pray. God, we need you. We need your help by your spirit. We need help to live out these beatitudes and cultivate these things in our lives. God, let us see the importance of these things, that we are, we are communicating to our lost world who our God is through our actions. And let it be the question every day, are we communicating God rightly through our actions and our words and our deeds? Are we communicating that he is, he is a God that we can trust he is a righteous God. He's a merciful God. He's a holy God. And He is a God of peace. God, help us. Help us to live these out. And know that only through Christ, only through Christ can we be reconciled to God. And only through union with Christ can these promises be true of us. That God, we shall inherit the earth. We shall be satisfied, we shall receive mercy, and we shall see God 
And we shall be called sons of God. And we, we will be part of the kingdom of heaven. God, give us grace and give us mercy to live these things out. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word. Amen.